This morning, I am super excited to share a portion of scripture with you that is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, I have never preached a sermon probably that has this little scripture reference in it. Um, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's really my, my text today. There's not a lot of corresponding scripture. Um, I'm not making a theological statement here. <laughs> but in my opinion, most of the time when you're reading the scripture, if, if there's red letters, which meaning Jesus spoke it directly, then um, it doesn't take as much convincing with extra scripture to know. I mean, there's just power in those words. We just know it to be true. And so this morning, um, I'm excited to share that with you. I have preached um, on the Great Commission before I was sharing with Pastor Mike and uh, Chris a few weeks ago, and she wanted me to, to share this with as an encouragement to our body that um, the first time my father asked me to preach in, in the congregation I grew up in, at Joy Fellowship in Indian River, um, he called me while I was babysitting some kids. I was a nanny for eight years, and he called me on a Thursday and said, do you want to preach Sunday? And uh, I was excited and nervous, especially since it was Thursday. And uh, I kind of thought he did it to me on purpose to not give me too much time to prepare. Um, but he a- asked me if I wanted to preach, and I said yes. And um, he said, well, by s- I think he said, I don't know, I could begin the story a little off. But, you know, by Saturday you need to go through the message with me. So um, that didn't give me a lot of time to prepare, but... I chose the Great Commission that Sunday and uh, definitely preached a different sermon than today, but the text was from there. And as I was kind of going back, God God gave me the Great Commission to share with you this morning. And as I was going back through different notes and different articles, I kind of store and um, have an archive of stuff. I realized that that first Sunday that I preached at my church, um, that my dad was actually at this church preaching to at the time, it was Charlevoix Assembly. So kind of a cool um, cool correlation there that seems to be happening to us quite a bit lately, that God's just kind of giving us, at least for me personally and Pastor Mike and Chris, encouragement and confirmation that um, he had a plan for us here for a very long time before before he let us know about it. So I'm excited. This morning, though, like I said, I'm coming from a different um, angle a little bit. As I was painting my new kitchen, because um, it was currently orange, and I was not a huge fan. <laughs> Andrea has been there. She was not a huge fan of that of that orange. What did you say? You What did you say about it? Yeah. <laughs> Even for a tropics girl, that was like tangerine and sherbet. There were two tones. But um, I was kind of toning that down a little bit after my kids went to bed, because painting with eight children, especially when five are under five, was not working out super well, and uh, I was just kind of going over um, my sermon in my head. I don't think it, I don't think Tyler was there, and I just felt like God was kind of changing it. This is the direction I want you to go with, and that direction was actually more um, normally this. And I'll read it in just a minute. The Great Commission. Probably most of you are familiar with it, but normally it's preached as a mission service. Um, which makes sense because it's one of the greatest passages for that, um, permissions. But I wanted to come at it a little bit from a, um, 
what we can do to fulfill this as a local congregation, as a small congregation. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. My daughter Aurora um, came home from camp last year and um, told her daddy and I that God had called her to be a missionary. Jesus had asked her at the altar to be a missionary when she grew up. And um, we were obviously very excited, and we also weren't surprised. Now, we never said it to her because I don't think parents should ever, ever, ever put those types of um, things on their children's shoulders. Can't say that word very well. Um... But Tyler and I had discussed it before. If God calls one of our kids to be a missionary, it's going to be Aurora. She's just got, there's something about that girl. And uh, so we were excited. We were encouraging of that. Um, and that's been almost a year next month. And she still uh, very frequently talks about being a missionary. As we were getting ready, um, we're packing up all of our stuff at our house in Gaylord. And I did not do the most amazing job packing, in case you're wondering. I should not be a professional mover, that is for sure. If you need to move, I'm I'm willing to, like, make you lunch or something, drive the truck back and forth, but don't ask me to pack because I'm not very good at it. Um, but I was, one of the things that I was very particular about as I'm packing, like, just wrapped tissue paper and paper towels around it and whatever I could find, was a tea set that I had that my sister... Um, who has ministered in this congregation when she was itinerating to go to the Philippines, Sandy. Um, she brought me back from a missions endeavor in China, and it's a Chinese teapot and, and uh, low cups. And my girls and I do something called poetry tea time um, when we were homeschooling. So normally once a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, because it's life. Um, we have tea, and I have different tea sets, and so when we would drink like green tea or jasmine tea or something, we would read haiku poetry and use the Chinese tea set and um, have fun. And so the girls are very familiar with it. And Tilly, um, they're talking about the tea set coming from China. And Tilly says, hey, Aurora, maybe someday when you're a missionary, God will send you to China. And uh, she, and Tilly, uh, Aurora, without skipping a beat, she said, no, there's already missionaries in China. I'm going to go somewhere where nobody's preaching yet. And um, so... So I I took that as an opportunity to talk to her a little bit and said, you know, maybe God will use you to what we would call an on an unreached people group. But um missionaries sometimes we have we have people called home missionaries where they're actually in the states. Some people go, some people stay, some people um we have our missions, our huge office uh for the assemblies of God in um I'm I'm totally not thinking about where it is right now. It's not in our state anyways, I'll tell you that. Does, doesn't matter, I guess, with the story. But I'm telling her about that office, and, you know, there are missionaries there who are missions. They did missions in another country, but then they ended up coming back there, and they're working in that office um, because then they're knowledgeable about what's going on. So I'm just trying to kind of get in her head, and I probably over-talk to my children quite often. Um, but uh, just ask my husband. He will tell you I have a tendency to talk too much. But... Um, I'm just trying to kind of get through ahead that, you know, missions is everywhere. 
um, when Jesus called the first missionaries, he wasn't in northern Michigan when he said that. He didn't say, everybody who lives in Charlevoix, go out to the ends of the earth. Charlevoix was not Charlevoix yet. And so I was talking about our upcoming move, and I said, you know, Aurora, maybe, um, maybe God is calling you right now as he prepares you for mission someday. Maybe your training field is going to be in Charlevoix. Maybe that's where he's sending you to be a missionary right now. Maybe your school is where you're going to be a missionary right now. That's where you're going to train. And uh, it was kind of interesting because just a couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with Pastor with Pastor Mike, and, and it was a very respectful conversation, but we definitely had a disagreement because we were talking about homeschooling versus public school. And um, as some of you know, I was homeschooling my kids, and then I ended up putting them in the Montessori school for some different reasons. Um, not all of our children are adopted yet, so legally you can't homeschool um, foster kids. And so it just for different reasons, it was best for our family to put our twins in school with their little sister as well, so she wasn't singled out. And um, so we have her over in that school. I talked to Tony about it, and she was like, they're going to be fine there. It's a great school. So we went ahead and did it. And I was, I have been really happy with it, but I had this conversation with Pastor Mike because there were just some influence things happening there that I was like, I don't know if I can do this next year. And he's like, Hannah, you know, your kids, you just got to train them at home. And then, you know, they need to be witnesses too. those kids in the public school. They need Jesus too. And if all Christians take their kids out and I was like, you can stop right there because my God did not call my little children to be missionaries. It's their time to protect them and to keep them safe and to train them. And, and I don't need to put them in the school to do that. And, and we had this disagreement. And again, it was, it was uh, respectful. I respected where he was coming from, but I was pretty, I was a little bit uh, spicy with it because um, it was just kind of a point of, of contention. And just that next week, I had to humbly go to him and to apologize and take back what I said because um, God had used both of our daughters in different circumstances to do just that, to witness um, in their in their classroom. And, and that's what spurred on this conversation, telling Aurora, maybe this is your training ground. Maybe God did put you at this school. Um, she was able to, she talked to her teachers, and I apologize if I sound like I'm just bragging about my kids, but um, the, she went to her teacher and said, uh, can, I, can I read the Bible to our class? And so her teacher gave her the opportunity, all the kids, circle time, and, and she was able to read Scripture to her entire classroom in a secular school. Um, Tilly, I was talking to this young girl. She's a high school student at the school. And without going into the entire conversation, um, principal and I are talking in the hallway. This teenager comes up, and she's kind of interrupts, and she's talking a bit. And I was wearing this T-shirt that said, it's a Jesus and tea kind of day. And this girl commented, I like your T-shirt. And she goes back and forth. She's like, well, not everybody would think somebody like me would like Jesus. And that kind of opened a conversation. And she said, wait a minute, are you Tilly's mom? And um, I've heard the words, are you Tilly's mom before? And it's not always necessarily a good thing. Because sometimes that means, oh, no, what did she say? <laughs> like, it depends. But um, I said, yep, I'm Tilly's mom. And she goes, I just love Tilly. She is so nice to me. And um, she went on to to share a situation where Tilly had disagreed with what this young girl was doing, with what she was saying. But she said, Jesus loves you anyways. He made you. 
and just kind of went, gave her a hug and went along her way. So I went to Pastor Mike very humbly and I said, you know, you were right. Thank you for encouraging me in that. Thank you for, you know, telling me like it is because I need to be, have that mindset of just trusting God with my children and, and letting them be used by him. So sorry, I went off a little, a little long on that, but, um, my sister, she has a shirt. I promise there's a, there's a point to all this, guys. Um, she has a shirt that says Raising Legends, and I love her shirt, and I want one. But, um, I, Tyler and I were talking, and, and we want, I want a shirt that says Raising Disciples. Because that's really, um, for my husband and I, that is our absolute end goal in mind for our children. It is to raise disciples. Um, directly what this great commission is talking about, to raise disciples. Um, what is a disciple? We got to know what a disciple is if we're going to raise disciples, if we're going to make disciples. A disciple is pretty simple. According to dictionary.com, a disciple is a follower of a teacher or one who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrines of another. And that that is the, the key point there, who accepts the doctrines and then assist in spreading the doctrines of another. And that's what we've been called to do. The commission God gave us that day was not to make converts. It was not to make churchgoers. It was not to make church members where we make them sit through membership classes and then they get voting privileges. None of those things are bad things. In fact, you need a convert to make a disciple. But that was not the commission he gave us that day. It was to make disciples, to make people who... Help us and assist us in spreading the good news to everybody, which is here at home in Charlevoix. And some of us will go, like Jenna is going. She may have had her roots here, but she's going to Dubai to spread and assist in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ across the world. That's what we've been commissioned to do. You know, when we make a convert, I think it it gives Satan a bit of a black eye. He's having a bad day. But when we make a disciple, we can shake the very gates of Hades. Because when we make a disciple, that disciple then goes and makes more disciples, who makes more disciples. And disciples, converts can't do that much. Converts are going to heaven, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But converts aren't making other disciples. When we make disciples, we can change our schools. When we make disciples, we can change our workplace. When we make disciples, we can change the, the very face of history. You know, on uh, on 9-11, the United States of America, even I would say even the world, was affected so greatly that it will never be the same. Absolutely will never be the same again. You will never fly in an airplane the same again. Our pastor and his wife and a couple of his daughters just took an airplane ride just a few days ago. They flew a different way post 9-11 than they would have before. They could have probably, I don't, I don't know the actual statistics here, but they, I can't even imagine, um, I don't really remember, frankly, but getting through security at an or- airport before a 9-11 was completely a different experience than you would have today. Period. You will never fly the same way again. 3,000 lives plus were affected that day. 3,000 lives went into eternity, whether they went 
to eternity in heaven or hell, they went to eternity. Their families will forever be changed. They can never have their loved ones back. We made orphans that day that maybe by now they, they had an existing parent left or they were adopted, but they will always be affected because of the actions of that day. We have people today who are permanently disabled in different varying degrees because of what happened that day. We have first responders and other people who went into the the wreckage afterwards, who inhaled fumes and different things that today, still today, have breathing issues, have different kinds of problems um, because of the effects of 19, plus the people that helped them, obviously, but of 19 men who flew airplanes into buildings that day because of 19 people and the people who sent them. Those people were not converts of a false god. They were disciples of a false god. They believed so much in their false religion that in the name of Allah, they were willing to die for what they believed in. Because of disciples of a false god. Can you even imagine? And, and I'm not saying that we don't have any disciples of Jesus Christ who are that radical, who, who love God so much that are not willing to die for them because I've seen them. I met them. I know them. We read stories. We know that they're there. But can you imagine if just the people in this room were so radical about what they believed? Can you imagine what we could do? Can you even imagine? The truth is, I get it, we all have jobs, we have a life, we have children, we're busy with different things. But if we every single day, every single day, whether it is in the morning when you're literally taking a shower and you spend that time, instead of thinking about your day as you're washing your hair, about all the things you have to do, if you take that time to just worship the Lord, to ask him to direct your steps that day, to ask him to send people into your path that you can share the gospel with. And I'm not saying this from a place of perfection because God knows that I am not perfect. God knows I fail, but I get up and I try again. But if we were so committed to making disciples, if every Christian in America was so committed to making disciples, we would live in a different America. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. We live in an America where our rights daily seem like they're taking, they're being taken away from us. There, um, we are constantly, I hear, I hear Christians, I hear pastors apologizing for what we believe, apologizing for the word of God. It breaks my heart. It absolutely breaks my heart. And we live in a country that is so, it's becoming more and more perverse every single day. And if Christians would just stand up and become disciples, would become radical, we could change all that again. We absolutely could change all that. If we could, then I didn't coin this phrase, somebody else, somebody else did, but if it's as if we could greatly live out the great commandment and the great commission, then we could be the greatest church that this world has ever seen. And I'm not talking again, I'm not talking about our church center point. I think we have a pretty great church. I have really enjoyed the last couple months being here. I know God sent me here and I couldn't be happier. And I mean that. I think we have amazing people in this church. I'm beginning to just love this community. And I'm excited to serve here. I'm excited to serve you. I'm excited to serve along with you. I'm excited to serve our pastor. But guys, we can, and I truly believe we will, but we can 
make an even bigger impact in this community. And how do we start that? Um, We start that with the greatest commandment. It goes hand in hand with the greatest commission. And the greatest commandment is, um, is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Again, these words are Jesus. They're red letter words. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. These two, the great commission and the great commandment, need each other to work. We need to love, first of all, you have to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Or you're not going to care about what he says in the word anyways. If you don't love him with everything you have, with everything you are, you have to have that relationship first. That's key. You have to have a relationship first. But then you love your neighbor as yourself. Ministry is not as hard as you may think sometimes. That's been my experience. Granted, I'm 31 years old. I do not have a ton of experience. I don't have many years. I'm probably one of the youngest ones in this in this room right now. But I can tell you that I feel in many ways I've been in ministry because of the way my parents raised us. I've been in ministry really my entire life. And my father led by great example that ministry is all about relationship. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. How do you show them how much you care? You love your neighbor as yourself. You put other people before yourself. And this morning, I want to bring that back into the Great Commission, into making disciples. Um, how can we make disciples? We start, like I said, with loving your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater example. I could I could Google it. I could write things down. I could go to the back to some of my seminary classes and give you great examples. But really, the greatest way to learn how to make disciples is by reading about the original disciple maker, Jesus. We just do what he did, and it's easier said than done to an extent. But but test me in it. Go back home this afternoon or throughout the week. And read the red letters, read the stories of Jesus, read what he did in his three and a half years of ministry. Put some of those things into practice, into action, and your life is going to change. The people around you, you're going to affect them. Jesus was the original disciple maker. So we're going to look to him this morning on how to make disciples. I'm going to try to make this quick because, like I said, I'm long-winded. But um, I'm going to read. I don't. I don't like reinventing the wheel. There is a book by Robert Coleman, and it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. This is something, he's not an Assembly of God man, but um, he he has written a book. It's a pretty short book. They use it in a lot of seminaries. I, I took classes through Michigan School of Ministry, which is a non-accredited school, but um, just for pastoral leadership, and they use it in one of his classes. It's fantastic. If you can get your hand on it, I would absolutely... I. I'm guessing you can probably still buy it on Amazon, and it's probably pretty cheap because it's a paperback, like, 150-page book. It can't be that expensive. But it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism, and uh, the leadership training principles that he used were super simple. They were basic. They were easy to understand, and they were easy to do. Um, This is a quick summary from Coleman's book. 
How did Jesus disciple? First of all, he chose. He did not spread himself too thin. So he chose his disciples, the people he would work with um, on a daily basis. He had 12. Maybe you can handle 12. Um, right now I can handle eight, apparently. That's how many I have. But, um, but he, he chose men who were willing, men who were available, men who trusted um, he chose converts, obviously, who, who he brought them along with him. Um, in association, he worked with them. He devoted his time to them. Even in the midst of ministry to the masses, they were with him in all sorts of situations, called to simply be with him and to follow him. Um, in youth ministry, when I worked in youth ministry, I had a certain group of four kids that I called. It was the Be With Factor Club. And, um, these were kids that just came with me. If I was, uh, it didn't matter. It wasn't all ministry stuff. They just were with me. I would invite them with me, their parents, let them come alongside. Sometimes if I was babysitting, they were with me. They were just with me. Sometimes we opened the Bible. Sometimes we didn't, but they were with me. They watched interactions that I had with other people. They may have gone grocery shopping with me. They did plenty of ministry things. Some of those ministry things were setting up for potluck. Or a different outreach that we had. Some of those ministry things were working alongside in our food pantry that we had at the time. But they were just with me. And that's what Jesus did. His disciples were with him. They spent time together. Consecration. He called them to obedience. To turn away from sin and to sacrifice their own personal interest. To turn to him and his teachings. He called them to commit themselves. Not to doctrine or program, but to his person. To make disciples. We have to have a good enough relationship with them. We have to have our own knowledge of scripture well enough to actually call them out in their sin this isn't a bash them over the head get your bible out and thump them with it this is in love and kindness sometimes sometimes depending on the person and the thick-headedness of them maybe you do need to be a little more aggressive but this is calling them out in their sin this is having a good enough relationship with them that you can say listen to me brother or sister what you're doing is wrong what you just said was wrong this and then and then bringing them back. This is what God expects of, of us. This is a call. When you see sin, call out sin. And you have to do so with wisdom. Impartation. He gave himself to them and for them. The foundation of their relationship to him was his love and self-denial. That is so important. If you're doing this for yourself, if you're mentoring someone all for yourself, then then you're not making disciples. You're doing something out of selfish gain, out of selfish ambition. Pastor Mike talked about that Wednesday. But Jesus gave himself to them. He sacrificed for them. He lived discipleship before them on a daily basis, and there was no limit to his love for them. His commitment to them and giving himself for them was the motivation of their giving themselves totally for him. Demonstration. He taught them by showing them. All the disciples had to teach them was a teacher who practiced with them what he expected them to learn. So they learned to pray by hearing him pray, learned how to use the word by observing his handling of it, learned how to minister by watching him ministry in ministry. They began, became evangelists by his demonstrations of evangelism. Discipleship is easier caught than taught. That right there is one of the key factors. Discipleship is easier caught than taught. I could give you a book. I could tell you to read it. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But if I'm the type of person who has put no money where mouth is, 
Why would you listen to anything I had to say? And again, this comes back to the be with factor. Having people come along with you. Delegation, he put them to work. We see examples of this in multiple times, but in Mark 6, 7, Matthew 10, 5, and Luke 9, 1 and 2. They assisted him as he ministered. Gradually, he sent them out two by two. The instructions he gave them were most interesting, I think, um, automatically of when he told them, um, when he sent them out the first time and he said, don't take anything with you. Don't take a bag. Don't take provisions. Don't take money. Go into a town. Ask for, you know, you're pretty much homeless there. Ask for somewhere to stay. Stay there and do the work. Depend on somebody to feed you. Depend on, you know, all these things. And, and he, he did that eventually. He told them, he sent them out two by two and he gave them provisions. He told them to take stuff. But, um, he delegated things. And all those while we see examples of, of him teaching through all of that. Supervision. He kept check on them and used their experiences to instruct them further. Um, Mark 6.30 is a good example of this. And this was on the job training at its best. They were giving adequate room to work and learn, yet never without his concerning guidance as it was needed. In reproduction, it is clear that he intended them to become disciples. The church is like the mustard seed. It starts out small, yet we expect it to grow bigger than the crops around it. Um, this is a pretty clean-cut, orderly example, like I said, from that book. And the and it's a lot messier when you put it into practice. I thought, um, and I probably, I don't have the greatest notes on this, but... But in in life, we deal with a lot of different people. If you've been in any type of leadership in the church, or maybe we can use the example if you're in like a supervisor or management position at work and you're, it's your job to train someone. Um, I would say it's a rarity that you find someone who is just really, really great at whatever, you know, task they're given. People are messy. We make mistakes. We screw up. Um, in In church life specifically... I think about times that, you know, maybe we have someone new to the church. They've given their heart to God. And then we see them. And they've been here. Oh, my gosh. They've been here six months already. Can you believe it, Brother Jim? Six months and they're still sinning. What is wrong with them? They must not even. They, this must not be real to them. And we start giving up on people. We start judging people. That's what I see in churches so often is that we kind of, we come to this place where we expect someone to be a convert. We expect them to to get saved. And all of a sudden, supernaturally, God just imparts his wisdom on them. And then they're perfect and they're out there doing a great job. Maybe we put somebody, somebody comes in, they've been here a few months, they want to do a job in the church. Um, They want to, they want to, can't come up with anything. This is not good. But they want to do a job in the church. They want to, maybe they want to teach a Sunday school class. Granted, in this church, we do have different things in place so that people who teach Sunday school, they've already become members. They've gone through a certain, um, a certain vetting process. But let's just use it as an example. They, they teach the Sunday school class. And maybe we're watching her. It's her sister Jackie comes to me. Sorry, I'm using you as an example here. But, and she's just like, you know, Hannah, you let her teach Sunday school and you should hear what she said. It sounded so ridiculous. She was fumbling. She was stumbling. She just, I just don't think that's a good job for her. And we're so quick to, ex- we just expect people to just arrive and to be at a certain place. But then when we look back to the Bible, first of all, these men, these 12 men that we're talking about, specifically the 12 original disciples, 
they were people who were ordinary people. They were fishermen. There was a tax collector, the big sinner of the time. And these were people who didn't go to seminary classes. They were ordinary people like me and like you. They're ordinary people like the people coming into our church, like the people God is is preparing to come into this congregation because I believe that soon and very soon these these chairs are going to be full and we need to be ready as a congregation to accept them and to disciple them and to give them time. But we see these examples. If you if you look in Jesus' training, again, what I read from that book, that's pretty clean cut. It's all in there. But really, if we look at the Bible, we see a lot of mess ups. We'll pick on Peter for a minute. Peter alone, you know, Jesus is, is, is walking on water. Peter gets out of the boat. He's going to walk on water with Jesus. Bloop. He's starting to sink. Now, we'll point out that the other 11 were still in the boat. Peter did get out. But, but Peter sank. And Jesus brought him up again. We don't see this example of Jesus, like, scorning him forever and putting him in timeout and, like, you're not allowed to come with us next time. Take a break. Take a break from ministry. You failed. Nope. He helped him out again. We see Peter again, multiple examples. Peter had a, a tendency to, uh, to talk before he thought. I have that problem sometimes. You, you speak too quickly. My dad used to tell tell all of us, but he probably told me a little more often, especially through my teen years, that you need to talk less and listen more, Hannah. Talk less and listen more. I can't tell you how many times I heard that from my father. Peter needed to talk less and listen more sometimes. You know, he's a he's he an example when when Jesus is washing the disciples feet and and he's through some of them and Peter's like no 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 you're not washing my feet I'm gonna wash your feet and and Jesus and I'm not gonna quote it properly but he said if you know if um see if I wrote it down if if he anyways he speaks up Jesus says something like you know you need to allow me to do this for you or you have no part in me and so Peter just instantly, he talks, talks so fast. And he's like, well, then wash all of me. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash everything. And, and some scholars believe that's kind of a showy, it was a showy thing in Peter. And then just moments later, Peter's like, I, Jesus says, somebody's going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, not I. There's no way. Maybe the other 11. I've been watching them. They're not as great as me, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Rooster crows, bam. Prophecy fulfilled. He denied him. But the same exact Peter, you know, he chopped off the ear, chopped off the ear. After, you know, Jesus asked him to stay up, to pray, the disciples fall asleep. Another example of the disciples not doing what Jesus told, letting Jesus down, making mistakes. Jesus loves him anyways. Peter, he can't stay up to pray for him, but he's there to defend him with a sword. As soon as the, the soldiers come to arrest him, chops off an ear because he's impulsive. That's Peter. But the same exact Peter, later on, Jesus says that on you, you're going to be the rock that I build my church on. So Jesus used messed up people, and Jesus never gave up. And that's what I want to challenge myself included, but what I want to challenge our congregation with, that we are going to have people coming in this church who want to be involved in ministry, who want to be part of this congregation, and they are going to mess up. They're going to be messy. And we got to love them anyways. 
We have to work through it with them. We can't be quick to judge. We can't be quick to put them in timeout. We have to bring them along with us. I tell you, I have, uh, again, I have eight children. Five of them are girls. It is just something about girls. It is like inbred in them that they want to cook. They really want to cook. It doesn't matter if I'm like boiling water to soak something. I don't do that. But, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. They've got, if mom's in the kitchen, we got to be in the kitchen. If grandma's in the kitchen, we got to be in the kitchen. And I tell you, they are difficult to cook with sometimes. They're like right next to me. Do you know what I'm saying? You have daughters. They're like right next to you. Like mom's here. They're here. I want to do it. I want to do it. It's easier to cook without my children. It's easier to clean without my children. I've seen memes before that says cleaning with your children or with toddlers in the house is like brushing your teeth while eating Oreos. I am here to tell you that that is so true. But because I'm a fantastic mom, (laughs) because I try, because I'm a failing mom who keeps on trying, I give them opportunities to do that with me anyways. And it would be so much easier without them. It would be so much easier to clean bison. My one, one of my one-year-olds is obsessed with sweeping right now. When I was at Target the other day, I, I bought a new tiny broom for him to use. Now that broom is a thorn in my side sometimes, but he's learning. And Jesus, guess what? The best of us in this room, the most talented one of us in this room, sometimes we're a thorn and aside. Because compared to Jesus, we can't do ministry or the darn. You and I, we have failed. We have been the disciple that made mistakes. And if Jesus gave us up on us as quickly as we are willing to give up on a brother or sister beside us on Sunday morning because they're not living up to the perfection that you have in your mind for them, you've set for them, then we are failing. We are going to have people, again, I'll just say it over and over and over until you're sick of me saying it, but I truly believe that a breakthrough is coming for this congregation and we are going to have people, new people coming in. We're going to have broken people coming in. If we are not willing to accept broken people, then we have no business unlocking the door on Sunday morning. None at all. If we're not willing to give the same love, love our neighbor as ourselves. when our neighbor is, is a drinker, then we have no business claiming the love of the Father as our own. And I'm not saying we want those people to stay in the various degrees of sin that they may or may not be in. I'm not saying that if, you know, Sister Sally can't teach her way out of what paper bag, we don't need to find a new ministry for her to do instead of putting her in charge of our children's ministry. But what I am saying is if we use judgment, if we use shame, if we are talking when we should be listening, when we should be asking the Holy Spirit to direct us, then we have no business calling ourselves disciple makers. We need to be about our Father's business. Our Father's business, Jesus' business, was making disciples. It was not making converts. And again and again and again in the scripture, we can see Jesus, say Jesus, go, he does say, go and sin no more. He says in the Great Commission, he tells them to, he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. He tells them to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
He doesn't say, be, just look, stay the way you are, come as you are. Lots of churches' slogans are come as you are. We don't add the other part that, that we mean behind it as, but don't stay that way. Because we want to see change. And sometimes God is going to use you and I. It's going to use our mouth to maybe provoke that change, to call them on in sin. But, but, only, and I mean this, first of all, we have a hierarchy in this church, and our pastor is number one. God has appointed him, and he has anointed him to the office and to this podium, and he is our pastor. He is our authority. Now, there's a proper order if you disagree with him to go to him, but he is our authority. So really, at the end of the day, unless God is really leading you to, nine times out of ten, I'd say 9.9 times out of ten, it's the pastor's job if there's someone in the church, especially if there's someone in the church. I'm not talking about in your own family, especially probably parents to children, but if there's someone in the church you go to the that you see in sin, you go to the pastor, you don't go to them. It's not your job to call out, Sister Sally, when you think she's failing, it's the pastor's job. But he, it got, Jesus did say, go and sin no more. He corrected. But guys, he was soft about it. Think about if you go through the parables. Why did he use parables? Last week, you know, stone soup is not a biblical parable, but we used it with the children as a parable, as a teaching story. Jesus used teaching stories to, to teach the masses masses to teach his own disciples we see examples where just in his disciples he's using a parable and then he said and now i'll explain what it means because even though he already made it simple to understand he took the extra step and he made it even simpler he broke it down we can't expect people to come into the church to use all our christianese on them and for them to understand it and follow what we're doing we need to be willing to to get uncomfortable, and to break things down for people. Lead by Jesus's, we use Jesus' examples. Jesus could have fed the 5,000 by himself, 100%. He did not need that little boy and his fish and his loaves, and he certainly didn't need 12 guys to go around and, and to divide people into groups and to go and collect it and to go hand it all out. He didn't need them. He could have done it. I mean, he created the universe with words. He could have done the same thing. He could have supernaturally made all their bellies full. Didn't even need anything to go in their mouths, but he chose to use people. We have to have, op- we have to give people opportunities, whether they're brand new to our church. It's going to look different. We have brand new converts or maybe people who haven't accepted Christ at all, but for whatever reason, they've decided to become a part of our congregation. We need to give them ways that they can serve, that they can be part of the body. Maybe that's stacking chairs with us on Sunday, but we're doing it with them. Maybe there could be totally, there could be infinite ways that we can include people, but we need to make sure that we include them. We cannot become so possessive of of something in this church that we're not willing to give it up to anybody else. Pastor Mike this morning is not so possessive of his pulpit that he wasn't willing to give me the opportunity to preach. And I'm sure he's very careful with it. He's not just going to, you know, put an ad in the newspaper who wants to preach Sunday. But 
he's not so possessive of it that he can't give a younger minister an opportunity to hone skills and an opportunity to to preach, to do what God's called her to do. And we have to be willing to do the exact same thing. Sir, church is certainly not supposed, and I promise I'm finishing up, Jackie, if you want to come. Church is not supposed to be a social club where we sit around, we get together with people that we like, people that like the same color as us, like the same thing as us, and we drink coffee. Church is a time that we come to to worship God as a body. Church is a place that we are not only ministered to, but we're also, we at different times, we're put together so that we can um, form a plan of action, that we can become an army that's willing to go out of disciple makers And we get to hang out, and we get to enjoy each other, and we get to drink coffee, which are all really nice things too. But not in the sanctuary because there's a sign. But guys, we are supposed to be about our Father's business. That's really what church is for. If all we're doing is getting together to sing songs corporately, not that that's a bad thing, but really... It's probably not worth the money you put in the offering plate on Sunday. Maybe I'd get in trouble for saying that. I don't think this has been recorded anyways. You can tell Pastor Mike. But guys, if we're not willing to be about our father's business, then why are we even here? If church is all about us and what we get out of it, then there's no point in coming, frankly. Get together with your best friends at the coffee shop and talk about Jesus. But guys, we come here to form a plan of action. We come here to be challenged by the word of God. We come here so that we are renewed, so that we are energized, so that we can go out into the world and be about our Father's business, so we can go and make disciples. And guys, in this church, disciple-making is going to get messy soon. It's going to get messy soon. We're going to have a bunch of, I I just believe it. I'm just going to speak it out prophetically that we are going to have so many kids coming in these doors and those kids are going to be messy. They're going to be loud. They're going to make messes. And I do mean physical messes. Kids are mess makers. We're going to start Taekwondo soon. It's not just for a sport, but it's a means to, to serve our community and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And those kids are going to be messy. These are kids from broken homes. They don't look like mine and your kids, maybe. They're going to say things. They're going to sound ways. They're going to offend people. And I'm not just talking about the kids. We're going to have people who are going to come in here and they're going to offend you. But it's your choice to be offended. Or it's your choice to love them anyways. Give them opportunities. I would like to read real quick before we go to a time of worship, and um, and I'm just going to I'm going to invite you. I don't have I don't have notes for it. Just before church, um, I I subscribe to different email lists through the assemblies. And this morning, and I I forgot about it, but this morning is Pentecost Sunday, and. Uh, so they sent out an article that didn't even say who it was from, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and read it real quickly. It instantly kind of resonated with me because at the beginning, um, it kind of correlates to my father's story of coming to Christ. 
He was an alcoholic, and he got saved in a truck. And uh, I want to read this to you, and then we're just going to have a time of prayer, a time of worship, a time for you to respond if you'd like, if you're will, if you're, if you're feeling led. But I just really want to hit on something. You know, the, the Great Commission talks about all authority and in heaven and earth has been given to me. We are co-heirs with Christ. The same exact power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and lives in me. We do not have second-rate Holy Spirit available to us today. And if you're a Christian, this is just my opinion, doesn't mean you can't be a Christian without being filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you're a Christian and you are living without the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, working through you, then in my opinion... And I don't mean this offensively by any means. So please don't take it that way. But in my opinion, it's kind of like pedaling a tricycle when you could be riding a Harley. It's like pedal power when you could be driving a car. So why do you want to be pedal power as a Christian when you can be a monster truck? I'm going to go ahead and read this article. It's just put out this morning. My dad was an alcoholic and a high school dropout. His addiction was ruining his life. When he and my mother learned she was pregnant, which the doctors had said could never happen, it was a shock. They had been married seven years but had not been able to have children. My dad had tried to quit drinking many times, and he tried again when he learned that they were expecting, expecting without success. Everyone had given up hope on my father and his many broken promises. Everyone. Shortly after learning about the pregnancy, my parents were driving home from a 4th of July celebration. My dad had been drinking and started to have chest pains. Without saying a word, he began to slow down to lessen the impact. While clutching the steering wheel and sweating, he whispered a prayer. God, I don't know how to pray, but my mother used to pray. If you heard her prayer, maybe you'll hear mine. Spare my life to see my child. Save me. And if I ever take another drop of liquor as long as I live, I want you to poison me and I want to die. Dad had never kept a promise to stay sober. But in his mercy, God looked past all the prior failures and broken promises. And he saved him. He healed him. And he delivered him from alcohol addiction instantly. From that day forward, my dad never took another drink. That same thing happened to my father. Except he was in a truck and had decided to end his life. Instead of slowing down to lessen the impact, he accelerated and got ready to go through a guardrail and go off into some type of decline. And Jesus showed up in his old blue Ford pickup truck that day. And he saved his life. And he instantly became sober and he never took another drip. Drink again. How do we help those who are newly converted become spiritually transformed so that they will not quickly become aborted believers or simply casual Christians? Guys, those are challenging words. Aborted believers. Unwanted believers. I've been in churches. I've talked with people, Christian men and women of God, who have in a sense aborted new converts, new believers, because they weren't willing to put in the time and effort. They weren't willing to look past the failures and to get down and to get messy 
and to help them succeed. How, how can we help? An effective way to help people become fully devoted to Christians is by helping them embrace a spirit-empowered faith that expresses it. Self in Great Commission living empowered by Great Commandment love. I tell you guys, I didn't read this article until this morning while they were finishing up worship practice, and it correlated so directly to my message this morning. I had to share it with you. The ultimate goal of our faith journey is to relate to the person of Jesus, the one who spoke the Great Commission. Our relational connection to Jesus will produce Christ's likeness and spiritual growth. His instruction was to teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always to the very end. To the very end of the age. Jesus has not abandoned us. He's with us still. And he's empowering us to live this out. We need to become disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Because that's when we shake the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. Because we're making a difference. Too many people start at the wrong point, which guarantees the wrong result. Many times the discipleship model exclusively calls on the disciple to obtain a rational knowledge, learning, and do behavioral activity, how to act and what to do. Concentrating on what we should know, if taken to the extreme, can make us quite arrogant. Behavioral effect, doing more or behaving better, taken to the extreme, completely minimizes grace. Knowledge and behavior are essential, but alone they do not transform. Relevant discipleship does not begin with doctrine or with teaching, parables or stewardship, but with loving the Lord with all our hearts, minds, and souls and strength, and then loving the people closest to us. This is the greatest commandment. A spirit-empowered faith starts where the great commandment tells us to start. A disciple must first learn to love the Lord deeply and to express his love to the nearest ones, his family, church, and community. As we become rationally or relationally connected to Jesus, he helps us to experience power for living that gives us an extraordinary capability, a spirit-empowered lifestyle. The primary purpose of spirit empowerment is to carry the transformative mission of God among the lost. With the challenges facing us today, it would be senseless to attempt to affect a change in the lives of the people merely by utilizing our own ingenuity, intellect, and human effort. Amen. God has not abandoned us to that fruitless recourse. When we take hold of the Spirit's power, we are fully equipped and emboldened to confront our lost world with the hope of the gospel. Our forefathers got it right. The last sentence in the Assemblies of God's Statement of Fundamental Truths revealed the Pentecostal understanding of the importance of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The language is super important, folks. It speaks of something extra, something added on. With the baptism in the Holy Ghost, such experiences of overflowing fullness, deepened reverence, intensified consecration, more active love, the key word here is more. The Holy Spirit will help us be more than we are. But you will receive power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. We will need power for the enormous task of fulfilling the Great Commission. The Spirit helped a shepherd boy become a king. Fishermen became disciples. A murderer became a deliverer and a carpenter became the Messiah. 
The Holy Spirit will help us to say more than we know. The Holy Spirit helped Peter beyond his ability on the day of Pentecost. I'm telling you, the correlation between my message today and this article could not be more obvious that God has directed this. The Holy Spirit helped Peter beyond his ability on the day of Pentecost. Because of the extraordinary ability of the Holy Spirit, a man who had recently denied he was with Jesus was so anointed that when they heard him speak, 3,000 people were instantly, they were saved, they were baptized. Because they heard a failure speak. Because they heard a screw-up speak. Because they heard somebody who just recently had denied Christ. Because they heard him speak, 3,000 were saved and baptized. The Holy Spirit will help us do more than we can. He will help us to accomplish more than we ever could using our own natural ability. Samson killed 1,000 people with a jawbone. Gideon overcame odds of 450 to 1 when 300 people defeated 135,000 people with trumpets, clay pots, and lamps. In what areas do you need more? Ask yourself that question. In what areas do you need more? You can begin by exhibiting the spirit and power and lifestyle. If Gideon could do it with an army of 300, he had clay pots. Those would not be my weapons of choice, but the Holy Spirit empowered. This morning, this wasn't intentionally my closing, but guys, I just want to encourage you this morning, and I know that there are not very many people in the room, so it can be awkward. It can be awkward for me, frankly, standing up here to give a call to response if nobody responds, because believe me, the flesh inside me has already gone over in my head. Like, what if nobody comes up? Then it seems like I'm not really being led by the Spirit. Then everybody's watching. But guys, I'm going to do it anyways because the Holy Spirit is prompting me to. If you're a Christian who is living without the, the Holy Spirit, maybe you don't actually know what that means. And if you don't, you can ask because it's a sermon for another day. But if you are a Christian who maybe has been seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit and it hasn't seemed to happen. I've seen it in my life where I had a brother-in-law who uh, who was saved for many, many years. He married my sister and he wasn't filled with Holy Spirit and, and he continued to pray. And he, every single time, it seemed like, especially at camp services, he would go forward and he'd ask. And it just never seemed to happen. And then one day at a youth service in a tiny little church in St. Ignis, the Holy Spirit just fell upon him and bam. He was filled with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I don't know. I cannot tell you exactly why. Sometimes it takes some people longer. They have to ask more. I could tell you maybe sometimes it's a faith issue. Maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter right now. I can tell you that kids, it's so much easier with kids, it seems like. My little girl, Aurora, she was at a mission service. She just went to pray for a missionary, and as she was praying, all of a sudden, Boom, she started praying in tongues. Never skipped a beat. Her twin sister, Tilly, we talked about it months later. She had prayed for it over and over and over again. And and she was sitting on the couch. We were doing a Bible study for our homeschool. And it was time for lunch. And she didn't get off the couch. 
she wouldn't get off the couch. And I go in and talk to her, and she's just, tears are rolling down her face. And she said, Mom, I'm not getting off this couch until God fills me with the Holy Spirit. And to make a long story short, like, this mama bear heart, I, I was on the texting my husband, like, you need to come in the house because this is what's happening. And I'm just afraid that, you know, if she doesn't get filled with the Holy Spirit today, her faith in God is just going to be completely lost. And the what if, the what if, the what if. And Tyler being <laughs> the good spiritual father and husband said, but what if she is? And that little girl, and this, until he doesn't sit still long, but that little girl stayed on the couch for over three hours praying and and it ended up happening. I don't know why some people it happens at the altar. Some people it happens in this car. It doesn't matter where it happens, when it happens. But I want to encourage you, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, to come forward this morning and let your brothers and sisters pray for you. If you want more of God, if you want the power that comes with that, then I encourage you to ask for it. I encourage you to ask for it. It may be out of your comfort zone. Do it anyways. It doesn't mean that if you don't come forward today, it's not going to happen. But guys, what if it does? What if it does? I truly feel that... Like I said, if you're a Christian living without the power of the Holy Spirit, you're riding a bicycle. But guys, if we want to make the heavenly effect that that our pastor's heart is for this community, then we need a whole church of people driving monster trucks. So I'm just going, I'm going to put down the microphone now. The worship team can sing, they can play. If you need to go, then you can go. You can consider the, or this, this dismissal. But if you want to stay and, and pray for that, for that filling, for a refilling, for that power, maybe you've been filled with the Holy Spirit before, but you just don't feel like you're living in it. Circumstances have happened, changes in your life. Maybe periods of, of backsliding or whatever it is, circumstances, depression, fear have leaked in and you just don't feel the same closeness that you did one time. You don't feel the same power. Then ask God for a refilling because he'll give it to you. God, would come before you this morning. Lord, we close out the service. We close out this time with you. But God, I just pray, Lord, That you would just make us a body of believers that forms an army of disciple makers. God, I pray as we go that, Lord, you would just, you would go before us. That you would give us opportunities to witness for you. That you would give us opportunities to, to make disciples, starting with converts. God, that you would give us opportunities to live out the greatest commandment. And then the second, by loving our neighbors as ourselves. God, we worship you. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be praised. So be it in Jesus' name. Amen.